Well, thank you very much, and good evening. And I'm glad to be with you again tonight in Princess Town, where I've been coming over every day from Digo Martin. And so it's good to see all of you here again this evening. And it's been a blessing for me to review some of these things in my mind and to see the response from you as you are reminded or maybe here for the first time some of these important topics for the time that we're living in, our prophetic message. And on Sabbath, as a reminder, we talked about the third angel's message of the patience of the saints, the commandments of God, and the faith of Jesus as seen in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 35 through 39. And then Sunday night, we talked about the overview of Daniel. We saw that there were the four visions, Daniel 2, 7, 8, and 10 through 12. And at the end of Daniel 2, you have the stone, which is, represents Christ and his coming, which strikes the image. This is the second coming. At the end, the last vision, you have Michael standing up, which is the close of probation, just before Jesus comes. And then the middle two visions, Daniel 7 and Daniel 8. At the end of the kingdoms in Daniel 7, you have the beginning of the judgment in 1844. At the end of the kingdoms in Daniel 8, you have the beginning of the cleansing of the sanctuary in 1844. And so the focal point of Daniel is 1844 to the second coming, and that's the very time that we are living in. Now what we saw last night in the book of Revelation, in the three sevens of the seven churches, the seven seals, and the seven trumpets, in a nutshell, is that in 1844, God raised up the Second Advent Movement during the Judgment Hour to proclaim the three angels' messages to prepare the world for Jesus to come. And so, in a nutshell, that is what we have seen so far. Tonight, I want to take a deeper look at the Second Advent Movement which is the movement that we are a part of. So far, uh, as we've gotten into Daniel and Revelation, what we have done so far, we've taken an overview, a big picture look. Starting tonight, I'm gonna start getting into some of the passages of scripture in more detail in the book of Revelation, specifically tonight, and we may jump over to Daniel 7 and 8 as mentioned. Before we get into our message, I'd like to just have a brief word of prayer and we will get started. Father in heaven, we thank you for this evening. I thank you for each person that is here. And I just pray for a special blessing upon us this evening as we learn more about the second Advent movement that you have raised up. May you speak through me. May you fill me with your spirit so that each one of us here can be blessed with a message that you want to be shared tonight. This is my prayer in Jesus' name, amen. Okay. When we look at the book of Revelation, and we looked at the overview last night, we saw that the Second Advent Movement and its beginning is described specifically in Revelation chapter 10. Now, to understand this a little bit more clearly, Revelation chapter 10 immediately follows the end of the sixth trumpet. And as you remember from last night, there are seven churches, 
seven seals and seven trumpets that follow one right after the other. So seven churches, seven seals, and seven trumpets. And what I'm going to mention briefly here is just a brief overview of the trumpets. Revelation chapter 8 is the beginning of the trumpets. And Revelation chapter 8 describes the first four trumpets. Now, if you want to get a good prophetic historical overview of the first four trumpets, you can read Uriah Smith's book, Daniel and the Revelation. He does a nice job going through the history. But in a nutshell, in Revelation chapter 8, you have the first four trumpets, which describes the downfall of the Western Roman Empire. And when you have studied the three sevens, you understand that in the seals, it was Rome that persecuted God's saints. Pagan Rome first, in the first up through the first century, and all the way until about 313. And then after pagan Rome persecuted God's people, papal Rome picked up the persecution. And the seals describes that. And specifically in Revelation chapter 6, verses 9 and 10, the saints who have been persecuted, their blood figuratively cries out to God and says, how long, Lord, till you judge and avenge those who have persecuted us? And the Lord says, don't worry, I will take care of that. And the judgments of God on the persecuting power, namely pagan Rome and papal Rome, is described in the seven trumpets. And specifically, trumpets in the Bible describe judgment. So in Revelation chapter 8, and the first, the first four trumpets are described, you have four barbaric nations, I won't go through all the details, but four barbaric nations attack the Western Roman Empire, leading to its downfall in 476 AD. And then in Revelation 9, you have the fifth and the sixth trumpets, and this represents the attack of the Eastern Roman Empire, they were attacked by Islam or the Ottoman Empire. And specifically, there are two time prophecies in Revelation chapter 9. There's the time prophecy of the five months in Revelation chapter 9 verse 5 that represents 150 years of persecution by the Islamic Ottomans on the Eastern Roman Empire. And then, in Revelation chapter 9, verse 15, there's a time prophecy that tells us that after those 150 years of persecution have been completed, another one hour, one day, one month, and one year of further persecution will continue. Now, do you know how long one hour, one day, one month, and one year is prophetically? Well, if you add it up according to the year-day principle, one hour is actually 15 literal days. One day is one literal year. One month, which contains 30 days, is 30 literal years. And one year, which contains 360 literal days, is 360 literal years. You add them all up, and you get 391 years and 15 days. 
Now, why am I taking the time to explain this to you? Well, the reason why is that the time prophecy of Revelation 9, verse 15, details when the Islamic Ottoman Empire would come to its end. After it came to its end, that would be the end of the sixth trumpet. And if you study history, the Ottoman Empire fell on August 11, 1840. Now, if you know anything about what we've been talking about, we know that the Second Advent Movement, God raised up to begin a special work in 1844. So if you study the trumpets carefully, the trumpets also provide a key roadmap to get us to 1844. Because right after we see the end of the sixth trumpet in Revelation chapter 9, we have the announcement in Revelation chapter 10 of a great movement that God raises up. Now, here is what is fascinating. When you study the Second Advent movement, those who were studying the prophecies came to an understanding of this time prophecy from Revelation 9 verse 15 before it was fulfilled. And let me read to you what Ellen White says. <clears throat> she quotes Josiah Litch as he explains this prophecy. And this is in the book Great Controversy, pages 334 and 335. And by the way, how many of you have read the book Great Controversy? Okay, good. How many of you have not read the book Great Controversy? Don't, don't be shy. How many of you have not read the book Great Controversy? If you have not, I recommend this book very highly. Next to the Bible, if you want to know our message for this time and how to be prepared and how to avoid Satan's deceptions, next to the Bible, I would recommend the book Great Controversy. So if you haven't read it after our prophecy seminar is over, go buy a copy at the ABC in San Fernando and you can get it in paperback. It's pretty cheap. And read this book. It's, it's a powerful book. So let me read to you what Ellen White says about this prophecy of Revelation 9, verse 15, starting page 334. In the year 1840, another remarkable fulfillment of prophecy excited widespread interest. Two years before, Josiah Litch, one of the leading Millerite ministers preaching the Second Advent, published an ex exposition of Revelation 9 predicting the fall of the Ottoman Empire. According to his calculations, this power was to be overthrown, quote, in AD 1840, sometime in the month of August, end quote. And only a few days previous to its accomplishment, he wrote, and I quote, allowing the first period, 150 years, to have been fulfilled exactly before the Greek emperor ascended the throne by permission of the Turks, and that the 391 years, 15 days, commenced at the close of the first period, it will, be on the, it will end on the 11th of August, 1840, when the Ottoman power in Constantinople, Turkey, may be expected to be broken, and this, I believe, will be found to be the case. Now, that's pretty good to come down to the very day, you'd have to admit. 
to say, you know what, I think based on prophecy, and he says the first part of the prophecy began on July 27, 1299, you go 150 years from that, that takes you to 1449, and then you go 391 years, 15 days from that, and you use July 27, 1299 as your starting point, the ending point would then be August 11, 1840. Now, you have to be right on the money or you're going to look really bad, right? Well, guess what Ellen White says here, page 335, continuing. At the very time specified, Turkey, through her ambassadors, accepted the production of the Allied powers of Europe and thus placed herself under the control of Christian nations. The event exactly fulfilled the prediction. When it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by William Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus was given to the Advent movement. Men of learning and position united with Miller both in preaching and in publishing his views, and from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. This leads us right in to Revelation 10, because here's what happens. If you understand history, and specifically the history of the Second Advent Movement, William Miller was a farmer who had been a Christian, he turned away from God, he became a deist, which is to say, I believe that God exists, he created the world, he set the world in motion, and he removed himself from it, and he has nothing to do with the world now. God has nothing to do with us, and we have nothing to do with him. That was where William Miller was. And somewhere along the line, he had a conversion experience, and he started studying the Bible. He started studying the Bible very carefully. He started in the book of Genesis, and he went through it verse by verse by verse, and he wouldn't keep going until he understood the verse that he was reading. And somewhere along the line, he came to the verse in Daniel chapter 8, verse 14, which says, And he said unto me, Unto two thousand and three hundred days, then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. Now we've already talked about this, but realize when William Miller came to this verse in the 1800s, nobody had an explanation for this Bible passage. He had never heard anyone talk about the 2300 days. And he was wondering, what does this prophecy mean? And so in the 1820s, he came under the conviction after he connected it to Daniel chapter 9 and the decree of Artaxerxes, which began in 457 BC, that the sanctuary would be cleansed sometime around 1843 and he came to that conclusion roughly 20 years before it would take place. Now for William Miller, this was a joyous discovery because you see at this point, William Miller was not studying the Bible just to get some interesting information. William Miller was studying the Bible because it was the word of God because Jesus was his best and dearest friend. And if you read what William Miller says about his study of the Bible, he says, in Jesus, 
I found a dear and true friend. Now let me ask you this. Is Jesus a dear and true friend to you? When you have troubles, when you have trials, who do you turn to? Do you turn to Jesus or do you turn to the television? Do you turn to Jesus or do you turn to snack foods? Who is your best and dearest friend? William Miller found in Jesus his best and dearest friend. And he discovered in the 1820s, hey, Jesus is coming around the year 1843. And he shared that conclusion privately with his family. But he said, you know what? I hope that others will figure this out and start sharing this message because I'm definitely not a preacher and I'm not going to get up front and start preaching in churches because I don't have the preaching talent. And so he kept this secret to himself for a number of years. And around 1831, the Holy Spirit started convicting him because he was continuing to study through the Bible. And by now he had gotten all the way through the book of Revelation and he had developed a model of Bible study that Seventh-day Adventists to this very day continue to use in our interpretation of Scripture. And the Holy Spirit used him. And he knew now by 1831, Jesus is coming in about 12 or 13 years. But nobody was giving that message to the world. Now, if you knew that Jesus was coming for sure in one year, and by the way, we know from the study of the Bible and from the study of the spirit of prophecy that we don't know when Jesus is coming. But I'm just using this for an illustration. If you knew that Jesus was coming for sure, 100% in the next year, would you be motivated to go out and tell the world around you or would you be embarrassed by the fact and say, oh no, I don't want to go out and tell anybody about Jesus coming. That would make me look bad. But if you love Jesus and you know what He's done for you, you will want to share that message. Amen? Well, you know, William Miller struggled because the Lord convicted him under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And He said, go tell the world what you have learned. The things that the Holy Spirit has convicted you of, go and tell the world. And William Miller said, no, Lord, I can't do that. I'm not a preacher. I'm a farmer. I grow corn and crops and things like that. But I'm not a preacher. I can't get up in front of people and explain the prophecies of Scripture. Lord, you know that I can't do that. And so William Miller, in his heart and in his mind, he made a little bargain with the Lord. And this was the bargain that he made. He said, okay, God, I hear you. If you give me an invitation to preach, I will do it. And that was it. And he's like, praise the Lord. Nobody even knows me. Nobody's going to ask me to go preach about this stuff. I mean, there's a few people in my family that know that I study the Bible. But the world around me, they have no idea that, that, that I've studied every verse of the Bible and I can in my mind, explain the message of this book. 
Now, if you study carefully how William Miller studied, you'll have to, you have to understand something. William Miller would come to, for example, Daniel 8.14 and the 2300-day prophecy, and he would, in his mind, think, okay, what are potential objections to the conclusion that I have come to? And he thought of every possible objection that the critics could think of. He worked out all the answers to any possible objections. And so before he ever preached his first sermon, he already had the objections figured out. He was a mighty student of Scripture. And so in his mind, he's like, praise the Lord. I have it figured out. Nobody's going to ask me to preach, and I won't have to preach this message. Well, unbeknownst to him... The, Holy, the same Holy Spirit that had been working on his mind had been working on the mind of his family. And his family sent his nephew, which lived a town over, and this was before vehicles, and even in the United States. This was 1831. And his nephew walked from the town over. This was actually on a Saturday, because at that point they worshipped on Sunday. And... As William Miller made the deal in his mind with the Lord, unbeknownst to him, his nephew was already on the way over to give him his first preaching invitation. And so within minutes, I don't know how long, maybe half an hour, an hour, a couple of hours, someone knocks on the door. It's his nephew. And he, William Miller opens the door, his nephew walks in, and he says, Uncle William, our family, we need a preacher for church tomorrow because the minister's out of town and we want you to come and preach about the second coming and the things you've been studying. And William Miller, it hit him like a ton of bricks because the Lord in that moment, he knew that the Lord had given him the call to take this message of the soon coming of Jesus to the world. And he stormed out of the house and he went into the backyard where there was a maple grove. And for about half an hour, he wrestled with the Lord. But he came back from that maple grove with tears in his eyes. And he went into that maple grove as a farmer, but he came back as a preacher. And the Lord used him to become one of the great preachers this world has ever seen. And William Miller began preaching with power based on the 2300-day prophecy of Daniel 8.14 that Jesus is coming within the next 12 years. And you know, the stories are told that wherever William Miller went, the churches were full. And when, wherever William Miller preached, he preached with conviction. And when people heard him preach, they couldn't leave the place without making a decision for or against Christ. And I'm telling you that as you study the history of the Second Advent Movement, as William Miller came onto the scene, as he started preaching that message with power, and as you see that this message started taking a across like wildfire throughout the United States, you will see that that same power inspired by the same Spirit that started to proclaim the coming of Jesus in the 1830s and 40s will again come to Adventism. Because we are now, as we talked about last night, in a Laodicean state so that we will think about Jesus coming, but it's not the first thing on our mind all the time. 
With the Millerite movement, the coming of Jesus was the first thing and the foremost thing in their hearts and minds all the time. And God is looking for a group of people like that again. And so as William Miller was preaching this message for about nine years in church after church after church, week after week after week, he was preaching every week, every Sunday, and the churches were full. But at the same time, he was not strategically getting the message to the biggest churches, to the biggest towns. And he happened to get an invitation to a big church in Boston, Massachusetts, to one of the big churches in one of the biggest cities in the United States at that time. And he preached the message with power. And the pastor of that church, his name was Joshua Himes, <clears throat> he came up to William Miller at the end of that message and he said, do you really believe what you are preaching? And William Miller said, of course I do. Why else would I have sacrificed everything else in my life to be giving this message to the world? And Joshua Heim says, well, this is only three years from now. We've got to do a better job of getting it to the world. And at that point, Joshua Himes became what you would call the business manager of the Advent movement. He started booking William Miller in the big churches, in the big halls, and the message really took off. And Joshua Himes started getting the message in the newspapers, and it started spreading like wildfire. And they started putting out publications, and they had a message called Signs of the Times. And they had other publications as well. And it was right around the same time that Josiah Litch, this Millerite preacher that I just read about from Great Controversy, he studied the prophecy of Revelation chapter 9, and many people by this point had heard William Miller explain Daniel 8.14, the 2,300-day prophecy that... Uh, in the Bible, in prophecy, one day equals one year, so 2,300 days will be 2,300 years, and that takes you from 457 to, at the time, they believed 1843, and then Josiah Lish says, hey, if you take the year-day principle, and you do the one hour, one day, one month, and one year, and you follow that from beginning to end, that takes you to August 11, 1840, and when that event was fulfilled, People were like, whoa, 2300-day prophecy is going to come to the end three years from now. And that prophecy in Revelation 9.15 was fulfilled exactly as the Bible said it would be. These Millerite preachers know what they're talking about. I better get ready for Jesus to come. And Ellen White says, as she, as she said here, when it became known, multitudes were convinced of the correctness of the principles of prophetic interpretation adopted by Miller and his associates, and a wonderful impetus or power was given to the Advent movement. Now, in that setting, with the fulfillment of this prophecy, because she says from 1840 to 1844, the work rapidly extended. It's in this setting that Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, comes into existence. And let me read to you Revelation chapter 10, verse 1. Here the Bible says, And I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven, clothed with a cloud, and a rainbow was upon his head, and his face was at were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. 
Now, how many of you were here when I spoke about the two mighty angels of Revelation back in January? How many of you remember that message? A few of you. Okay, so I'm going to explain this to you again. Here you have, in the context of this fulfillment of the one hour, one day, one month, and one year being fulfilled on August 11, 1840, and Ellen White says, this gives power to the preaching of the second coming of Jesus that the Millerites were giving. In that context, Revelation chapter 10, verse 1 says, I saw another mighty angel come down from heaven. And the way this angel is clothed tells us who this angel is. He's clothed with a cloud. A rainbow was upon his head. His face was it were the sun, and his feet as pillars of fire. Now if you go to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus, chapter... 15, I'm sorry, I think it's, no, it's Exodus 13. Exodus chapter 13, verses 21 and 22, notice this. Exodus 13, 21 and 22, it says, And the Lord, who? And the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light to go by day and night. He took not away the pillar of the cloud by day, nor the pillar of fire by night from the, before the people. So who was in a pillar of cloud? It was the Lord. And in Revelation 10, you have a mighty angel clothed with a cloud. He also has a rainbow upon his head. His face is as the sun. His feet as pillars of fire. Now let me take you to Revelation chapter 1, verses 13 through 15. Revelation 1, verses 13 through 15, it says, And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. This is the Son of Man. This is Jesus. Notice verse 14. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like unto fine brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. Now, if you compare the mighty angel of Revelation 10, you see in Exodus 13 that the Lord, or Jesus Christ, was clothed with a cloud. And here, the mighty angel is clothed with a cloud. And you see in Revelation chapter 1 that Jesus, the Son of Man, has eyes like a flame of fire, his feet like fine brass burning in a furnace. And here in Revelation 10, 1, this mighty angel has feet as pillars of fire. And I'm here to tell you that in Revelation chapter 10, verse 1, as the Millerite movement is gaining power through this fulfillment of this prophecy in Revelation 9 of the end of the sixth trumpet, Jesus comes down from heaven as the mighty angel to give power to the Millerite movement, the second advent movement that gave, was the forerunner and gave rise to the movement that we are part of today. Jesus Christ is the one who has raised up our movement. And just as in Exodus 13, He led out the children of Israel from Egypt to Canaan, He is leading us, His second advent people, from spiritual Egypt, this earth, to spiritual Canaan, heaven. 
And that tells me that the movement, the church that I am a part of, our leader is Jesus Christ, the mighty angel. And specifically, in verse 2, we see what gives power to this movement. Verse 2 says, And he had in his hand a little book open, and he set his right foot upon the sea, and his left foot upon the earth. Now this mighty angel, Jesus Christ, comes down and he has a little book open in his hand, which is now open around the time of 1840. Do you know what this book is that was open? Well, did you realize, and we haven't talked about this, did you realize that parts of the book of Daniel were sealed? If you read Daniel chapter 8, for example, you have this vision of the 2300 days. But in verses 26 and 27 of Daniel chapter 8, it says, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. That's the vision of the 2300 days. Because when it says unto 2300 days, the word for days actually reads 2300 evenings and mornings. So here when it says, and the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true, that's the vision of the 2300 days. And then notice what it says, wherefore shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. So the vision of the 2300 days was shut up. And then when you come to the end of the book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 12, verse 4, it says, but thou, O Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Now, do you know when the time of the end began? If you study it out, and we don't have time, I'll just mention this. The time of the end began at the end of the 1260 years. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more tomorrow night. But at the end of the 1260 years, that ended in 1798. Which means that sometime after 1798, the book of Daniel would be unsealed. Specifically, people would start to understand the message in the book of Daniel. And it just so happens that William Miller, after 1798, he studies the book of Daniel and he comes to an understanding of the 2300 days. And then in 1840, Jesus comes down from heaven and he's saying, yeah, remember that book that was sealed to the time of the end? It's 1840 now. This book was unsealed 42 years ago. And those who are preaching the message from the book of Daniel, they are right on track. And I, as Jesus Christ, am coming down from heaven to confirm the movement that they have raised up through my power. And when I think about that, that makes me so excited to be part of this movement. Amen? What an awesome privilege to be part of the movement that Jesus has raised up for the end time. Now, as you go down, you have the seven thunders. Ellen White tells us that's the events of the first and second angels' messages. And Ellen White also tells us that in 1840, when that prophecy was fulfilled, the, the sixth trumpet, that is when the first angel's message, which was, fear God, give glory to Him, the hour of His judgment has come, they were preaching that message along with the 2300-day prophecy. And they believed, and here's what they believed, they believed 
that when the sanctuary was cleansed, they believed that the sanctuary was this earth, and they were wrong on that. And they believed that if the sanctuary was to be cleansed, that meant that the earth would be cleansed by fire at the coming of Jesus. They got everything else right, they just got the event wrong. So, you come on down, and you see in verse 6, language very similar to the first angel's message, where this angel swear by him that liveth forever and ever, who created heaven and the things that therein are, and the earth and the things that therein are, and the sea and the things which are therein, that there should be time no longer. Now, what that's talking about is that as we come to the unsealing of this book of Daniel, the 2300-day prophecy which points to the cleansing of the sanctuary and to ultimately the coming of Christ after the cleansing of the sanctuary, after this time prophecy, there is no more prophetic time. And then in verse 7 we read, but in the days of the voice of the seventh angel, when he shall begin to sound, the mystery of God should be finished as he hath declared to his servants the prophets. And if you recall from my sermon in January, Colossians 1.27 tells us that the mystery of God is Christ in you, the hope of glory, which means that if the mystery of God is to be finished, that means Christ and his character will be finished or fulfilled in the lives of the Second Advent Movement. God has raised up the Second Advent Movement to produce a group of people that demonstrate Christ's character to its completeness. Which is why Ellen White says when the character of Christ is, shall be perfectly reproduced in his people, then he will come to claim them as his own. Now, let me tell you a little bit more of the history of the Millerite movement. They initially thought that Jesus was going to come sometime between the spring of 1843 and 1844. Because according to the Jewish calendar, the year began in the spring and ended in the spring. So they felt, okay, sometime between the spring of 1843 and 44, Jesus will come. They didn't have a specific date. And of course, the spring of 1844 came and went, and that was known as the earlier first disappointment because by the summertime the Millerites were in confusion and they were wondering why didn't Jesus come here we are it's middle of 1844 now Jesus hasn't come yet what's going on well God used another Millerite preacher by the name of Samuel Snow how many of you have ever heard of Samuel S. Snow this is a very fascinating story and it's actually one of my very favorite stories to tell about the rise of the Advent movement. Samuel Snow studied the prophecies more carefully and he realized, you know what? The cleansing of the sanctuary in the Old Testament Jewish ceremonial law, the cleansing of the sanctuary took place once a year on the Day of Atonement. And in the Day of Atonement, well, the Day of Atonement, it occurred every year in the fall, specifically on the 10th day of the seventh month of the Jewish year. That was always in the autumn of the year. And he went back and he studied the Jewish symbols a little bit more carefully, and he studied, you know what, when Jesus came to this earth, he fulfilled 
type and antitype or symbol with him being the actual fulfillment at the right time. So here was the example he used. Jesus was the Passover lamb, right? And he died on Passover Friday right at the time of the evening sacrifice at 3 p.m., right on the money. And he served, his body was broken and was in the tomb over the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then when you had the wave sheaf offering on resurrection morning, Jesus was resurrected as the first fruits to typify the wave sheaf offering. And then 50 days later on Pentecost, the early rain was poured out. And you know what? He was right on the money with that explanation. And he came to a very fascinating conclusion. He said, well, look, all the spring festivals were fulfilled in Christ. But the fall festivals, namely, you have the Feast of Trumpets and the, the Feast of, or the Day of Atonement, those are in the fall, and they haven't had their fulfillment yet. And the 2300-day prophecy is telling us when the Day of Atonement will begin its antitypical service. And he said, therefore, I believe Jesus will go in to the most holy place at the beginning of the day of the Day of Atonement in 1844, and at the end of the day, he'll come out and come back to the earth. That wasn't a bad argument, was it? Of course, he was a little bit off as far as Jesus coming back to this earth. But then he studied a little more carefully, and when he looked at the Jewish calendar, the Day of Atonement for 1844 fell on October 22. And when he reached that conclusion, he's like, I got it. That's why Jesus hasn't come yet. Because Jesus won't come until the very day that this prophecy will be fulfilled. And as they went back and looked at the decree of Artaxerxes more carefully, they saw that the decree occurred in the autumn of 457, and 2300 full years after the autumn of 457 would take you to the autumn of 1844. So Samuel Snow figures this out, and this led to what became an unforgettable camp meeting in the history of the Millerite movement. And it happened on August 12, 1844. Now I remember the date August 12, because that's my anniversary. So August 12, 1844. Now mind you, this is now two months and 10 days before October 22. And Samuel Snow, he came to this camp meeting. It was in the state of New Hampshire. And I've been to the very ground where this camp meeting took place. And another Millerite preacher by the name of Joseph Bates was preaching. How many of you have heard of Joseph Bates? Joseph Bates was the first Millerite after 1844 to accept the seventh day as the Sabbath. And Joseph Bates is preaching before a large congregation. They estimated it was a, at least three or 4,000 people, maybe more. And he's preaching the same old truths, you know, yes, Jesus is coming. We just need to have faith. Someday he's going to come. And let's just keep having faith in Jesus and he'll come someday. You know, we can do better in our churches than to preach sermons like that. Amen? We need to have an urgency and a conviction to the truths that we preach. And as Joseph Bates was preaching this message, 
Samuel Snow came on into the campground on horseback, and he got off his horse, walks into the tent, and his sister was sitting on the front row, and he sits down next to her, and to be quite honest with you, the audience, they were getting bored by this message because it was one of those sermons that you've heard a hundred times kind of thing. And they're like, yeah, we've heard this before. Samuel Snow leans over to his sister and he says, I have new light for this congregation and for this movement. And his sister has the audacity to stand up and she says to Brother Bates, she says, Brother Bates, it's too late in the day to hear the same type of preaching over and over again. And my brother here, he has new light. Let him get up and speak. And to Brother Bates' credit, he sat down. And I'll be honest with you, humanly speaking, if someone did that to me right now, I'd be like, hey, Pastor Clark invited me to speak. What are you talking about? You know, that would just be your natural reaction, right? That would be your natural reaction. But Joseph Bates said, fine, come up and share a new light with us. And Samuel Snow comes up and he stands before the people and he explains to them the way I explained to you how Christ fulfilled right on time at the very exact day and time the spring festivals, Passover lamb, unleavened bread, wave sheaf offering, and then Pentecost happened 50 days later right on time. And then he said, according to my study, the Day of Atonement this year is October 22, which is two months and ten days from now, which means I believe that Jesus is coming in two months and ten days. And a hush fell over the audience. They sat in stunned silence. They could hardly believe what they were hearing. And they asked him to give the same sermon the next day because they wanted to know in their minds, are what you, is what you are saying, is that true? Is it right? And he explained it again. And at that point, the movement took off like wildfire. The Millerite movement was electrified. We now know when the 2300-day prophecy will reach its fulfillment. We now know when Jesus is coming. And historians describe that two-month period as if God's people were a tornado taking over the, the countryside with a message and the Millerites left that camp meeting with the words on their lips, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. And this is known in history as the seventh month movement because October 22 was in the seventh month. And for those two months, with great power and great conviction, the Millerites preached, Jesus is coming, October 22, 1844. Be ready to meet Him. You know what Ellen White says about that movement? Great Controversy, page 401. She's quoting someone who participated in the movement, and this person says, it produced everywhere the most deep searching of heart and humiliation of soul before the God of high heaven. It caused a weaning of affections from the things of this world, a healing of controversies and animosities, a confession of wrongs, a breaking down before God and penitent, broken-hearted supplications to Him for pardon and acceptance. It caused self-abasement and prostration of soul such as we never before witnessed. 
You know, we need that kind of a movement to take over our church again. We need a movement that will come in through the power of the Spirit that will cause our affections to be weaned from the things of this world. To have the controversies in our churches and the animosities healed. For us to confess our wrongs to one another and to come before God and to say, Lord, I am a great sinner. I confess my sins before You. I humble myself and by Your grace, I'm not going to hang on to my pride anymore. I'm not going to hang on to my selfishness anymore because I've seen what you have done for me on the cross and I love you so much that I want to share this message of your soon return with the world around me. And then she closes by saying, this is her words, of all the great religious movements since the days of the apostles, none have been more free from human imperfection and the wiles of Satan than was that of the autumn of 1844. Even now, after the lapse of many years, all who shared in that movement and who have stood firm upon the platform of truth still feel the holy influence of that blessed work and bear witness that it was of God. You know, I want to be part of a movement like that again just before Jesus comes. And you know, that movement was a fulfillment of the parable of the bridegroom in Matthew 25 which said, Behold, the bridegroom comes. Go you out to meet him. That was the midnight cry. And when Samuel Snow laid down very clearly the date for the fulfillment of October 22, that was the fulfillment of that parable in Matthew 25 of the cry, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go ye out to meet him. But you know, Ellen White says, that that parable has been and will be fulfilled to the very letter which tells us, as I close, that as the Millerites fulfilled that parable in the 1840s all the way up to October 22 with a proclamation, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. God is going to raise up a group again to give a very similar message. And as I mentioned back in January, that message that will be similar will be the message of Revelation 18 where we read in verse 1, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven having great power and the earth was lightened with His glory. You see, with the Millerites, to the best of their ability, took the message of the fulfillment of the 2300 days to every missionary station in the world in their time. But just before Jesus comes again, He's going to raise up people from the Second Advent Movement. The people that we've been talking about the last two nights. The people who will allow God to cleanse them from all sin in their lives. The people who, as in Revelation 10, verse 7, will have the mystery of God, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory, finished in their lives so that Christ's character will be reproduced in the lives of His second advent people. And when that happens, the earth will be lightened with the glory of the character of God because the people will see in the lives of God's people the character of Jesus Christ. And our message will be, just as the Millerites proclaimed, Behold, the bridegroom cometh. 
Go you out to meet him. And just as the Millerites saw prophecy being fulfilled, we will see prophecy fulfilled and we will be proclaiming Babylon the Great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And in verse 4 it says, for her sin, or verse 5, for her sins have reached into heaven and God hath remembered her iniquities. And when her sins reach to heaven, Ellen White says that is when the Sunday law is passed. And we will talk about that tomorrow night. Which tells me when the Sunday law is passed, God's people will have settled into the truth so that their characters will be like Christ. So they can give the message to the world, look, prophecy has been fulfilled. The Bible has spoken of this moment ever since Daniel and Revelation have been written. It has been fulfilled. Jesus is coming. Come out of Babylon so that you don't receive the plagues and the mark of the beast. Come in to God's remnant church so that you can be ready when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven. And when we as a people have Christ's character, we will give that message to the world with power. And Ellen White says that servants of God with their faces lighted up will hasten from haste from place to place to give this message, which tells me that here in Princess Town, those of you who are members of this church who receive the outpouring of the Holy Spirit will be going from house to house to o opening up your Bibles and saying, Jesus is coming. The bridegroom cometh. Go you out to meet him. It's time to come out of the world. It's time to come out of Babylon. It's time to give your lives fully to Jesus Christ. And God is so waiting for that day to come. And like I said, you realize that God is waiting for us. When the character of Christ shall be perfectly reproduced in His people, then He will come. And I want to say this. I want to be part of that movement that gives this message. I want to be part of that movement that hastens from place to place to warn the world that Jesus is coming the bridegroom is coming. We must be ready to meet Him in the clouds. He has done everything for us. He died for us. He shed His blood for us. He has given us His grace to empower us to live His life here on this earth. Now is the time to give our life fully and completely to Him. How many of you here tonight want to give your life to Jesus 100% so that you can be part of that last great word? If you so desire, I invite you to stand with me as we close with prayer. Father in heaven, I'm thankful to see each person here this evening who has made a decision out of a desire to be part of this last great message that will lighten the earth with your glory. To be part of a movement that just like the Millerites will shake the world through your power and through your grace. And Lord, we realize that it cannot be through our strength and through our power because we will fall flat on our faces. But we claim the promise that we can do all, three, all things through Christ which strengthens us. And we also know that the Bible says that without you we can do nothing, but that you are all-powerful. Lord, we ask for forgiveness for our sins. 
We ask for cleansing for the sins in our lives so that you can use us with power to give this message to the world. And I pray that Princess Town will be one of the places on this earth that will be lightened with the glory of the character of God because the people in this church are just like Jesus. And the people of this church are sharing the prophetic message that prepares us to meet Jesus in the clouds of heaven. May this church be a place where Jesus is met every Sabbath and every time we come together to meet for worship. And may you be with us through the remainder of this week as we continue our study of prophecy. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.